The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expanding the Circle of Personalized AML Treatment, Expert Consults on Integrating Precision Medicine with Innovative Treatment Platforms. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HGR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Okay, hello and uh, good morning or still sleeping, however it may be. I, <laughs> I, I still feel a bit tired, but thank you all for coming. You guys are very brave and uh, energetic to join this early, early morning uh, symposia with uh, Dr. Robos and myself. And we're going to be talking about expanding the circle of personalized AML treatment. So we're going to talk about progress in AML. And as you can see here, you know, without having to go through each of these, there's been a tremendous uh, advance in the drug approvals and in the treatment landscape. And, and this is starting to translate into improvements in survival, but we're by no means even close to being where we want to be. You know, the SEER database still shows that all comer AML across the country, all centers, all expertise levels, the three-year and five-year survival are about 33-34%, better than 20-25% a decade ago, but not 70-80%. So we, st we still have a ways to go. We still need to learn how to use these drugs optimally, how to combine them, how to use them in maintenance. But the good news is there are now a number of targeted therapies, immune-based antibodies, BCL2 inhibitor, CPX351, radio immunoconjugates that we're going to talk about. So things are moving. So this is kind of one of the many landscape slides you may have seen on the current treatment approach or the personalized treatment approach for AML. And, you know, we've talked about this for 20 plus years, but today it really is getting very personalized. So when you see an AML patient or when I get an email and they say, what would I do for this AML patient? I'm like, that's like saying, what would you do for, you know, a person with old age? I mean, this is a very, very, very uh, heterogeneous disease. So I need to know what is a FLT3, what is the core binding factor, what is the APL status, what is the IDH mutation, what is the TP53, and then what is the condition of the patient. So you really need to know for each patient that there may be different molecular or immune-based treatments and lower intensity, higher intensity based approaches. And then on top of that, when to do maintenance and who should get maintenance and who should not. So really an evolving field. So the key uh, goals here are to understand the baseline factors that inform treatment selection in acute myeloid leukemia, uh, talk about uh, mainly frontline and a lot of it will be FLT3 mutated given the recent approvals of Quizartnib and maintenance based approaches with FLT3 as well as general maintenance and then we will talk a little bit about some of the emerging data in relapse refractory AML, including some of what was discussed in yesterday's se session by Dr. Shetlig, the ASAP trial, as well as the uh, studies using the radioimmunoconjugate uh, from actinium. And then we will go to question answer. So with that, I am going to proceed here into the frontline discussion. You know, the frontline space is, is uh, probably the most exciting space. That's where we're actually seeing the cure component going up. So it's not just a matter of improving medians, which is kind of what we are still stuck with in the salvage. That's good. It's not bad. But when we truly want to improve the number of cures, frontline is where we think the big battleground is. So FLT3 testing is improving. This is kind of showing current standard of FLT3 testing that is uh, based on a evaluation uh, that was done across multiple centers in the United States. And this was 500 plus patients, as can be seen with uh, 50 plus years of age with newly diagnosed AML. And what we see is that, yes, FLT3 is being checked close to 80, 85%. And then some of the other mutations are also being checked. And of course, the big question is, how can this data be used then to incorporate frontline treatments 
with FLT3 inhibitors, what is the optimal combination, what is the optimal agent, when and where do we do stem cell transplant, and then what do we do after stem cell transplant, and then even more so, what about MRD, you know, MRD is now becoming a real discussion with some of the targeted MRG panels that we're doing, such as FLT3 and PM1, it's no longer something in the research arena only, and we'll talk about that more. So I think especially this early in the morning, it's probably nicer to go with the case-based discussion rather than didactics that uh, we all went through and saw a lot of nice presentations yesterday. So we're going to kind of frame this around a potential patient. So this is a 68-year-old patient. Uh, he presents with fatigue and weakness, common symptoms in acute myeloid leukemia. The white count is elevated, 120,000. Hemoglobin and platelets are low. He has a good ECOG performance status, has a slightly increased creatinine, nothing significant, but a little bit high. We see this commonly in our AML patients, and some prior cardiac history, although currently he's stable and doing well. So then, as usual, such a patient, you will admit them, you will give them hydroxyurea, we will side reduce, get the counts under control, close the monitoring, fluids, echocardiogram, all that workup is ongoing. And then, most importantly, you rush the NGS or the PCR, however you get this data in your institution, and you get the information back a few days later, showing a FLT3 mutation along with the DNMT3A and TET2. So the question is, what do you do now? 68-year-old, generally fit, little bit of comorbidities, but these seem to be controlled, and now he's in the hospital, stabilized and controlled, and what is the next treatment option? So of course, the first thing with the FLT3, and even when this patient came in with a high white count, we would be thinking that FLT3 is a very likely possibility, so we're usually going to wait or if we have to start treatment, then we're going to be rushing FLT3 to see what FLT3 inhibitor can be added. This is the current status of the FLT3 inhibitors. There are two big types of FLT3 inhibitors, the type 1, the type 2. It's not important to remember the type, but it's important to remember that each FLT3 inhibitor has a different profile of FLT3 mutations that it can cover and target. So drugs such as giltritinib, pranolinib, they can target both ITD and TKD, also mitostorin is in that group. And then drugs such as quizartinib and serofinib, very potent FLT3 inhibitors. In fact, preclinically, quizartinib is the most potent preclinical inhibitor we have seen, but they do not target the TKD. So if you have a patient with a TKD mutation, you do not want to be using quizartinib, serofinib. We would be leaning more towards giltritinib, mitostorin. But if you have just an ITD, I think both of these are good options in general. Now, in the front line, there are two FLT3 inhibitors that are currently approved. One of them is mitostorin that has been approved now for about six or seven years. This was based on the Ratify study uh, that was led by Dr. Rich Stone, showed that addition of mitostorin to frontline treatment was not only safe and feasible, but also improved the overall survival. There was a 7 to 8% absolute survival benefit at four years in those patients who received mitostorin versus those who received the standard chemo with placebo. More importantly, if you bridge those patients successfully to allotransplant, which really should be the goal, and today we are seeing at Anderson close to 70-80% transplant rates in patients below 70 with FLT3 mutation, and that's something I think other centers are also starting to see, you can then start seeing an improvement in survival beyond just addition of the targeted therapy. So it's not just one intervention, addition of the FLT3 inhibitor, but following that with allotransplant and then you can start really looking at impressive survivals compared to what we saw with FLT3 20 years ago, where the survival was about 20-25% at five years. But what is the new data that is emerging in the last one year, and this was discussed yesterday in the session by Dr. Urban and others who presented this data, that the addition of quizartinib to the induction chemotherapy of 3 plus 7 has also shown improvement in survival, and this was compared to placebo 3 plus 7. There's a lot of discussion about why was placebo chosen. The reason was the timing. When this study started, there was no data out on mitostorin, 
And once the global study had initiated, the data came later, and the steering committee felt it was really going to change the entire statistics to midway amend the study. And so the study continued the way it was started before mitostorin data and has shown a survival improvement. But when you look at this curve, you will say, well, how do I know between kizartinib and mitostorin? So there's two important differences for the quantum first that are important to realize from the ratify. So one of them is these are patients 18 to 75 years of age. So when you look at the ratify, all patients were 60 years of age or below. And in fact, about 40%, close to half of this population, the quantum first, was above 60, which we know is a higher risk group. And the second big difference was that this study only included ITD, which tend to be more aggressive, more proliferative, with a worse outcome, whereas ratify had about 30% TKD. So in general, this is a higher risk population. So then one of the big questions that emerged is, well, are these FLIT3 inhibitors only good if you take patients to transplant? I think transplant is the best path. And if you are able to take them to transplant, you should. You want your patients on that curve on top. But even those who achieve CR without an allotransplant can still have a survival benefit because in spite of best efforts, we know some patients will not be able to make it to transplant. This was actually different from the ratify study where we did not see that there was a survival benefit in those who did not go to transplant. So that's heartening to show that here with Kuzartnib, there was a direct benefit of the drug even in those who for some reason or other, in spite of best efforts, could not make it a transplant. The real big question in my mind is about age, because as I said, the ratify was patients below 60 years of age, and the quantum first allowed up to 75. Now we're getting into subset analyses, and statistically this is not a great way to do it, but this is the data we have. I don't think we're going to have randomized studies for below 60 and above 60. And as you can see, when you look at the below 60 years of age, you start seeing really that's where Quisartinib benefited the most. Four-year survival is close to 60%. With the Midastorin, it was about 50-51%. And in the older population, the reverse is true. I think this study shows that you should really be thoughtful about your older patients. And here, older is not above 75. This is 60 to 75. When you're considering intensive chemoquisartinib, a lot of people debate that the early mortality has improved. And it may have, but at least in this randomized study done in academic centers, when you look at that initial drop, first 60 to 90 days, you're still seeing close to 18, 20% mortality. So I think intensive chemo in people above 65 and even above 60, you have to be selective. And of course, with the emergence of HMA VEN and HMA VEN-based therapies, there is a movement towards considering those if the patient is appropriate. So just to realize that above 60 is still a tough group. I'm going to say a little bit about MRD. Uh, Gail will be going into more detail about this. And I want to show this slide and try to remember it because when we show you the morpho data, you can really superimpose these two slides. So this was basically looking at, again, a subset, small group of patients. This was not powered for maintenance, but maintenance was allowed. And what was seen is in those patients who were MRD negative at 10 raised to minus 5 using a leukostrat assay here, and then went to transplant, use a post-transplant maintenance with the FLIT3 inhibitor, Guisartinib did not seem to improve survival. Although those who were MRD positive at any level, 10 raised to minus 5, minus 4, minus 3 or lower, when they went to transplant and got a FLIT3 inhibitor, Quisartinib post-transplant, there was a benefit. So it wasn't just using maintenance or not, it was based on MRD using maintenance in those who had some detectable low-level disease is where you are actually seeing a benefit. And that will be discussed more of the morpho. So what about the side effect profile? You know, there's been a lot of discussions over the last decade about the QT and the cardiac issues. Clinically, I will say we have treated close to 200 plus patients with Quisartinib. We have a lot of experience with it. I'm not very worried about the cardiac signal if appropriately managed. You have to be careful. Obviously, if you start giving them an Azol and you start giving them Zofran and you start giving them other QT drugs and you add Quisartinib, for sure you'll see a QT signal. 
but on its own, and at least in this study and others, with the current dose, which is much lower than the phase one doses that uh, we were doing previously, we see the QT signal is actually very much in line with what you're seeing with other tyrosine kinase, menin inhibitors, and other drugs. So we don't see a huge grade 3 QT issue. This is not a problem. We do see myelosuppression because KIT is inhibited. So this is a known mechanism of quizartinib. So we do see the remissions may take a few days longer than what you would see with just 3 plus 7. And that's okay as long as you have a marrow and you're watching. And I just wanted to mention here the label. So the label here is quizartinib with standard chemo induction and as maintenance monotherapy also for consolidation in patients who are not able or not indicated to go to transplant. So you can use it as maintenance in those who don't go to transplant. However, post-transplant, there was no approval because that was not powered for a uh, data in that subset. What about other drugs? So obviously, the big question is where is giltritinib in this scenario, in the frontline setting? So in fact, just last month, data was published by Keith Pratt's and colleagues. This was a phase one single arm study, which was the backbone that has now led to a randomized phase two, three study, the Hovon study that's ongoing. Uh, at this time and close to enrollment as I understand it. And this basically showed that giltritinib could be safely added at 120 milligram to the backbone of the intensive induction chemotherapy. Also showed, and this is something more from a regulatory discussion that's ongoing, is this 42-day number, kind of the magic number that we're stuck on. It's probably not a really good number in the setting of adding TKIs. You're not going to get full counter recovery at day 42, and that may not be essential. And so when we look at it, if you are using that EFS as your primary endpoint with the day 42, then you may actually really just lose 30% EFS upfront, which could really give you a uh, false negative result. So this is something we need to work on as to what is the optimal time for recovery and what we should expect. Overall, survival looks encouraging, hard to say in a single arm study, but both the ITD and the TKD populations did seem to do good. And we're waiting to get the randomized phase three data. There are two randomized phase three studies, actually. One is this one, and then there's a randomized phase two precog study that is also going to be reading out soon. So here we're going to get back to our question, and, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Robos for some of her thoughts. So we have this patient, we discussed it, and uh, I guess the first question would be, what would be the FLT3 inhibitor you would consider, and what would be your goal for this patient, transplant, no transplant? When we constructed some of the questions to discuss, it goes along with the questions coming in on the iPad that oh, you really? can Good. see, yeah. so, so this is going to jive nicely. Um, one of the uh, one of the audience members has, has sort of asked right off the bat that what would be the role of mitostorin going forward here, and I think that so now as we've experienced in other areas, when you have multiple antibiotics that work, when you have multiple tyrosine kinase inhibitors that work, for example, in CML. Well, now you start getting a little bit picky. And um, I think when, when Ratify came out, actually, I mean, we have to stop for a moment and think about how the world was changed. We had a mutationally directed therapy, a targeted therapy. I mean, it, it really changed and, and launched um, a new era of, uh, of AML treatment. But it's not the easiest drug in the world. There is um, unpleasant GI toxicity with it. There are taste issues that patients really struggle with. Um, it's, it's not super fun to take. And I do think that 
um, both uh, both quiz and and um, gilteritinib are from a uh, patient appeal perspective have been looking easier to take. Now, there's never a free lunch in medicine, and I would say that the QT issue, again, as you mentioned, especially when you get into those older patients who might be on multiple concomitant medications that aren't just plain antiemetics, but other things, antiarrhythmics, et cetera, there you really start wondering whether the, the lack of obvious benefit for that age group in combination with the toxicity is going to be an issue. But I do think the answer to the question is that mitostorin is probably going to uh, not be necessarily a top choice. That said, the whole world doesn't have access to everything at the same moment. And I do think it's important to note that when you look at the curves, they're more or less superimposable. I mean, that yes, there are some small differences, but I don't think what we have done is blown the roof off of the therapy with something that makes um, a drug like mitostorin obsolete from an efficacy perspective, because actually looking at it again, uh, you know, it, it's pretty close. So I think it's important to acknowledge that um, we are unclear about what, you know, what everybody's availability is simultaneously. I don't think it's a tragedy if one has to use that. I do think if you have a bunch of choices in the, in the U.S. where the um, availability for for likely all three is going to be secure, I think it's going to be a tough sell. I don't yeah. know what have you feel it, Anderson. Yeah, I don't I, think you guys have used Mito in literally. Yeah, we. I mean, I think the GI issues with Mito and the kind of potency preclinically and single agent, uh, you know, was not very exciting. And I think serofinib is really what we were using for a long time. And again, it's kind of been a good workhorse. It's it's helped a lot of patients. But I think Quiz and Gilt are really where we're we're headed. A lot of it for the tolerability you know, also for the potency. And I think some of the data starting to come out. But I, I completely agree with you. I have to echo that. I think we all expected that with quiz and with guilt, we would have blown the roof off. We didn't. And I think this is really now getting into mechanism of resistance, where we're starting to see that at relapse, 50, 60% of these patients are not FLT3 negative. So I don't think it's any more a matter of can I make the best ever FLT3 inhibitor? That's not going to solve our problem. It's really how can we overcome this resistance? And, and of course, knowledge catches up with the trials. We didn't know that seven, eight years ago that we're going to see so many non-FLT3 relapses. And I think the big question is going to be how do you move these forward? So I guess the question then for this patient would be you've given, let's say, Quizartnib or whichever best FLT3 inhibitor you had. He's in remission, 68. You know, transplanters say, I've got a 9 on 10 or a 11 on 12. I think I can do it. What would you think? Should we move ahead? What, what's the next step? So I actually think that the, the point um, about what to use up front is actually very much linked to what we know about what you're going to do afterwards. And I think it's undeniable that, I mean, look, it was good that we got some post-transplant and some maintenance information from mitostorin at all, right? Ratify, Ratify took a long time to pull together. There was no NGS-PCR monitoring of FLT3 post. That, that's all new. So in the application of using what we have now, which is going to be actually Actually, a reliable MRD marker is that possible? It looks like we have one. We know a little bit better what is happening in the post remission and post transplant setting with the newer generation agents. That's going to dictate things too. I do want to go backwards though because we presented you a clinical case. And if there are clinicians in the room, I mean, some people are going to, you know, one twenty thousand is still, you know, that still gets everybody's blood pressure up when you're dealing with an AML patient. And I think it's worth saying that these patients sometimes come in hot. And when we are talking about combining, you know, in a 68-year-old with a stent 
percent and a little bit of renal insufficiency. Could you possibly be going a low intensity induction for this patient? Aza van Gilt is going to come up. Everybody gets twitchy with a white count of 120,000. Maybe there's some DIC. Maybe he's a little hypoxic. So I do think that um, slowing slowing things down with chemotherapy is sometimes a good thing. Got to be a little bit of care, careful. The tumor lysis is still an issue in these patients. Hyperleukocytosis with pharesis, I think, comes up a lot. We don't do that. I think we actually, we were part of... Um, a study that um, Amr Zaiden put together, actually, on what we all do for hyperleukocytosis, and it looked like pharesis was getting us a lot of trouble and not too many saviors. So we are going to cytoreduce somebody like this. We're going to give, um, we are probably, um, for for this patient, actually going to give um, some chemo, I, I think. Could I get this patient through with um, with low intensity? Yeah, but it's probably faster and get, get some chemo done. And this jives then with one of the... Um, audience uh, uh, questions here that, so first of all, would there be a role without a FLT3 inhibitor, either with um, a venetoclax-treated patient or uh, with a low-intensity patient or with a high-intensity? And, and I think, like, so yes, can you get responses without a FLT3 inhibitor if you're waiting or if you can't get one? Sure, don't sit and wait for the, the, the stork to deliver the FLT3 inhibitor. But I think we all want to see a FLT3 inhibitor here, um, if possible, whether it's in combination with a low-intensity or not, even though those triplet data, which we'll hear about, are not totally secure. But then the next question is, are we going to try to transplant this patient and who are we transplanting? So we are, FLT3 is usually not good news. We are taking these patients to, um, to transplant. But I do wonder, and I'm actively thinking about it, um, so this meeting is so nicely structured that you don't have to miss everything by being in your session. They scheduled it so that you can listen to other topics. So if you sit in the ALL session, what you see is that when therapies start working, you start firing transplanters. Oops, sorry. But but that was, it's an extraordinary thing to see that like, wait a minute, if we are truly MRD negative, if that works and you are MRD negative, is it possible that you can sort of not do a transplant for these patients. We're not ready to say that. We would be transplanting this patient. This patient is going to have a fairly high HCTCI. So yeah, I'm not going to want to see a multi-mismatched transplant with them. You're going to want to sort through what that looks like. Could we, would I be tragically upset and saying to this patient that there's no way that he could have two-year survival without a transplant? Actually not. I think we could probably get there. The problem is you're promising patients a cure with a transplant, or that's what they are thinking. So are you really thinking you're going to cure him? Be careful. We're going to try. We're probably going to transplant him. But you have a lot of data with a lot of different things to get him to two years. So depending on what he looks like after induction, if you think your 30-day or 60-day or 90-day mortality in transplant is some big number, he might actually do better to say, you know what, let me get some maintenance. Let me cut my losses and see if you guys come up with something a year from now before I relapse. Yeah. And and, uh, that's why obviously we chose this age, right? Because I think if it was above 70, 72, Everybody's leaning towards maybe transplant is going to have more toxicity. Yes, we're doing it, selected patients. And if you're below 65, 64, even though age is not the only criteria, it does make at least our transplanters lean more towards we should be going. So I think with this patient, I agree. I would probably go with the FLT3 inhibitor, get a remission. MRD, as you said, you know, is a good 
correlative tool and we want we need to keep doing it so that in the future it may become a regulatory tool and a decision making tool like ALL but today if he had a good high flip three allelic burden I would probably go to transplant if he was looking good at the end of induction and then of course we'll talk about post transplant what we would do the last question you know ITD versus TKD doesn't make a difference yeah absolutely it does if this patient had a TKD alone or even a TKD with an ITD I personally think I would be leaning more towards a drug that covers TKD, whether it's mitostorin, which is approved today, or maybe in the future, giltritinib, if we see good data with that in the randomized study, I think would be the, the next step to move forward. I think it's a challenge that's worth emphasizing that when you're not used to reading the reports, actually, I get this call with some frequency, it can be sort of, wait, is this an ITD? Did they say it's an ITD? Is it circled? People still struggle with that. And you do have to keep in mind that um, for Quisartinib was for ITD patients. So you really need to know what, what you're dealing with. I think the other, um, you know, I think the other uh, uh, question is that there are many practices still that I would say have maybe not completely stated, but a real cutoff for age in terms of transplant. I've heard it said many times that, well, we would send our patients under 60 or send our patients under 65. Or, and that, I think, is probably a tactical error. I actually think that pretty much everybody under 75 should at least be referred for the transplant consultation. I am not a card-carrying transplanter at all, but I do think that that discussion needs to be had because you don't know what's happening along the way in their treatment. And if you're late to the transplant party, if you haven't started looking, you don't know what your donor situation is, then time's passing and you don't want to be five months later with somebody hanging out on some post-remission therapy trying to figure out a transplant. If you're at five months out, you're probably late. Yeah, and, and, and as you said, the bar, even in our group, you know, 70 used to be the thing. Now there's 75. We had a couple of patients, 78. It depends on each patient. If you have a really healthy guy with no comorbidities, he's running six miles a day, he's 77. Sure. So I totally agree with that. So in the interest of time, I'll move here. I think the big question that everybody is thinking about, and I would say at Anderson, when this question, when this patient comes, there will be a lot of discussion in our group. And more and more, I think the discussion will move towards this, that why should we, if our goal is to get this patient into remission safely without beating him up and without getting a major enterocolitis, infection, toxicities, cardiac damage, and getting him to transplant, why do you need intensive chemotherapy-based approach? Azaven is an option, but we have all seen the survival. It's 11 months or so with FLIT3. You can take some of those to transplant, but you're getting very deep remissions now with the Azaven FLIT3. Early, yes, but every year, of course, it's becoming less and less early. The data is starting to mature. Large multi-center studies have started. And personally, I think if I saw this patient today, I really would be thinking very strongly about, is this what I want to do, HMA Ven plus FLIT3 versus intensive chemo FLIT3? And I think that is going to be a burning question in the field. In fact, there are randomized studies through Match, through UKNCRI, they're going to look at that question because I think that's the real question. Now, for an 85-year-old, everything is hard. Intensive chemo is out of the table. Azaven guilt is tough, no doubt. But for this patient, 65, 68, 69 where you could push intensive chemo, but we all saw the data, the early mortality is 20%, no matter what people say, some centers obviously may have it lower, or could you develop a lower intensity regimen? So just to mention, this is kind of our effort now at Anderson, you heard uh, Courtney Leonardo as well talking about the approaches, and the key here is these are not full dose. The second key is these are not indefinite triplets, you cannot give these for more than two, three cycles, but the question is, if your goal is to get them transplant, can you give it long enough? to get them there or can you de-escalate? So this is a work in progress and something I think that we're all discussing a lot in the meetings. And I think over time, we will start seeing the pendulum moving more and more towards this direction for such a uh, patient. 
And just to highlight here again, you know, the dosing is critical. The study has now moved into a larger study that uh, across 25, 30 centers, which will hold, confirm it. But for any of you who are using venetoclax, it's really, really, really important to review the data on how venetoclax is being actually used, not just the label, because you really have to adjust the dosing of ven, even in a doublet of azaven. I think 28 days is way too toxic, and especially if one is considering adding a third drug, you don't need it. You're adding toxicity without any clinical benefit. So I think it's yeah. worth it, though, for you to help people out that, I mean, are you guys really taking a 120,000 with a creatinine of one and a half and giving Ven on day one? I don't think so. No. Yeah. So, and, I and mean, that, just to clarify right. here before, the, Correct. The, don't try to cookbook this because you still have your, your clinical pharmacist, everybody is going to start having a heart attack if you have a 120,000 patient and you're prescribing venetoclax up front with a creatinine of one and a half. Right. So, if, if one <laughs> is thinking that, then refer that AML patient. Yeah, sure. right, <laughs> right, right. But no, yes, you have to debug the patient. So usually, as you said, we don't look at phoresis. It's either cytarabine or what Mark likes to do. We actually do sometimes use that, use a hit of gemtuzumab one time and hydria. But absolutely, you want to get them, you know, cool down, as we call it. You have three, four days anyways, because the molecular is going to take time. Get their white count nicely below 2010. And then if one is proceeding, one can do that. But I do want to highlight again that this is still not established. The data is building. But I think as time goes by, among the combinations, this one to us, the FLIT3 is looking more and more promising and powerful. All right, I will turn it over to Dr. Robos. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I'm excited, actually, that uh, there are quite a few questions that are coming through. So we are going to take the time to make sure to go through one by one. And some of them we have um, already partially answered, but we just kind of want to make sure to get through all of the material um, first. So. Um, maintenance therapy in um, AML, it kind of was a thing, and then it wasn't a thing, and now it's a thing again. And um, it's become actually quite complicated. So I think if we go back to um, our case, we're going to kind of keep going with um, this 68-year-old uh, patient. So he got some, in some induction, some in consolidation with a FLT3 inhibitor and chemotherapy. Just that bullet point alone, I just want to pose, uh, pause for one second, consolidation. Yeah, we say that, we move on. If you're a patient, you would really like to know, well, how many cycles of that? I mean, if you think of our other colleagues in solid tumors or whatever, you're getting six cycles of this and then you're done. You're getting four cycles of this, three pills, and then you're done. And we just say, well, you're getting consolidation. What is that? Is that one cycle? Is that two? Is that 12? Is that... So there's a lot of devil in the details and a lot of what I'm going to say over the next few slides because post-remission therapy is not as nice of a uh, recipe as what we would like to be able to provide patients with the real roadmap of what we're going to do. But this guy is in remission. He's MRD positive by a PCR NGS. Again, we say that very casually. Most centers actually don't have access to that testing at the moment. So note to self, we're going to talk about the PCR NGS um, MRD testing, a stem cell transplant within a year. So I set that up, right? I was already saying a minute ago that if you're hanging out at five months later, are you late to that? So we think about that a lot. They're like, oh, if you're waiting, I've now been in remission for seven months, I'm hanging out. Oh, now I've got a donor. Are we taking that patient to transplant? I'm going to talk to Novel about that, but I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure about this whole within a year concept and whether that makes sense and whether it makes sense to be finishing multiple rounds of consolidation and then doing a transplant. Why? If the patient is already, you know, five, six months out and doing well, I certainly pause about that. I don't think I've done that 
like possibly ever to do a transplant that yeah. late. <laughs> that is um, that is worth uh, some discussion. Okay. So back in the day, Sormain, when this trial um, came out, everybody was kind of, um, oh, what's raffinate post-transplant? The, the negativity was enormous. Oh, we don't really know. We don't really know about maintenance. We don't really know about doing something after a, um, a, a stem cell transplant. Transplant's supposed to be curative. Serafinib is a pain. People's hands fall off. You get, you get rashes from it. But, but actually, it's a very magical drug, and it worked. And it really showed very clearly and continues to show that there are immunomodulatory, not necessarily only FLT3, but actually immunomodulatory effects after transplant that really make it an interesting uh, drug. And this, I think, was pretty convincing. These data were showing that this actually made... Um, this made a difference. So it was important. Now we get into the, uh, the morpho trial. So these are, um, again, this is sort of pr prospectively designed uh, study. You're looking at um, allotransplant within, again, within a year of CR1, and that keeps coming up, but it, it makes me twitchy. And then they, whatever the conditioning is, then you get um, day uh, 30. I'm trying to, I can't see this well from here, but you guys can read, I think, what you, most of you know that you have day 30 to 90, you're getting engraftment, then you're, um, there's no bad things going on. Actually, I shouldn't even say that too quickly because getting patients onto post-transplant maintenance is sometimes a challenge. There are issues going on. There are multiple concomitant medications. They don't feel well. They haven't eaten anything yet. It's not that easy to get people onto maintenance, but you're randomized here to gilteritinib 120 milligrams daily versus the uh, placebo. And this actually, so this comes out and you look at this and, okay, primary objective, relapse-free survival, key secondary objective. Um, Uh-oh, is this a positive trial? Everybody is, you know, worrying. What's a, did, did, did this work? Did this not work? But I think that what's important and the, the story here is that this absolutely, this is an incredibly important trial. And I think everybody, certainly all the bankers misunderstanding and saying, oh, that didn't work, move on. No, it, it absolutely worked. And what it's showing us also is a lot about MRD. So if you go backwards to our original, and I'm on this committee for the original publication of the ELN guidelines, we were very sort of, uh, maybe FLIT3 doesn't really work, it's not stable, is this an MRD marker? Again, shifts in the MRD space. We went to saying at multiple different meetings that FLIT3 is an unreliable marker, you can't measure it correctly. All of post-remission treatment is what is there, so what is left over, what are you measuring? Can you measure it? And are you supposed to do something about it or not? And these are very hard questions. This specific assay, this PCR NGS assay, is a two-step assay. I have the schematic up here just to depict that this is a different test from what one usually orders. This isn't clicking PCR. This isn't clicking NGS. This is a sort of dual modality assay that has actually been a proprietary one, but that there is a scramble at the moment for even the academic centers to kind of get access to the assay and decide whether they're going to be doing it on site. The Illumina kits are expensive. You have to be set up for this, or are you going to do it as a send out? But this is going to become, this is going to be standard, and it's going to be on the checkbox forms that you work out with pathology about sending this. And in the same way as our ALL colleagues who are way ahead of us in the MRD space, that um, NGS testing, the clonotyping is standard, and you have to work out in your own practices how you're going to get it. That's going to be the case here. And the reason it's going to be the case is because of this. There is a very clear benefit um, 
And these curves are, are obvious. You don't need a laser pointer to distinguish between them. The, you can see for the MRD-positive patients that, that there really is a benefit here. And I think what is particularly important here is actually also the possibility that might we be entering a zone of understanding who might not need the therapy, who might be okay if you're MRD-negative, if you're clear by this assay, do you actually need to be on treatment? And I think this is a very tough space because we are all nervous in a maintenance setting that we really have solid enough data to stop the patient on therapy or to not administer it. But this is taking us to that, um, to that new area, and I think we're going to talk about that um, together, that how close are we to be able to be starting and stopping post-remission therapies based on any type of a, um, of a kind of commercially available assay. Now, I think it's interesting, and we put up this slide for a reason, just looking by, um, by regions. I think it's really, really important. The world is big, and there are a lot of thing, different things that go on in the world. And if you look at clinical trials data, it's not only this one. If you look at clinical trials data, there are significant differences through the world. And I think it's very important to understand the practice patterns and what is leading to the differences. How is the drug applied? How is it used? What are the practice patterns so that we can actually make evidence-based guidelines that make sense for different parts of the world? It, it does not appear to be uh, one-size-fits-all, as you can see here. Now, if you look here about the clearance of um, post-transplant MRD, so this sort of showing almost a, a, a case way of looking at this, and there were actually um, a lot of cases presented so far through this meeting of looking at what happens. So you've got MRD, you give gilteritinib, you get rid of MRD, and things get better. That is getting close to being to showing something that is different from just showing the prognostic abilities of MRD testing. We have gone through lots and lots and lots of demonstrations that the, the showing that MRD is there is not a good thing. But showing that getting rid of it with a specific therapy is a good thing is much harder. And this is taking us to that level. I think the problem is that we're going to, we don't want to have a bouncing ball situation with an individual patient that, oh, it's up, take a pill. Oh, it's down, don't take the pill. Oh, it's Tuesday, it's up again, take a pill. This, this should not be happening, A. And B, how often are you measuring this? If you're done, are you, are you done? Do you check it again? Do you dig for pain and check the sachet again three months later and then have it come back positive and then call Mark Levis and ask what to do? So this is, it's a challenge because we're just working out how to turn this not into anecdotal medicine to drive individual patients crazy with their ongoing therapy. Now, if you look here at drug-related um, uh, uh, AEs, I mean, these, are, these really are manageable. I think we all in the clinical trial space, I personally usually ban that word because have you ever read an abstract that doesn't have manageable toxicity? It has an 87% mortality on day five, but with manageable toxicity. So I think we're, we're we, but, but these are toxicities that one can deal with. And in the setting of a survival benefit, I think that's really where the calculus changes that, okay, if you're influenced survival and you can handle some cytopenias. There might even be dose changes that are applicable here. And I think that's worth noting. Just like with TKIs and CML, there's a lot of evidence that for some agents you can give less and still get to where you want to go. This will now allow us to experiment a little bit to see if there maybe this is 120 milligrams. Is it possible that 80 would work? We don't know, but we'll work on it. Okay. So we, um, he got his induction. He got consolidated with some Something. We won't quibble too much about that. He's MRD positive. And 
is there a role for maintenance here? What are the options and how would these um, uh, change based on factors, um, you know, mutation status? We haven't even talked about other mutations yet. FLIF3 usually doesn't hang out by itself. It has friends. So what about, um, you know, what, what are you thinking currently? What is your kind of standard for, uh, for maintenance right now for these guys? Yeah, so I, I think first of all, one of the things you mentioned, yeah, this one year transplant is completely crazy. I've never transplanted anybody at one year. So usually that decision is made right off the bat or within the first month or two. I think it's very unfair to a patient to do four consolidations and six months later say, I want to transplant. So yeah, if this patient was not going to transplant, you know, for whatever reason, the donor, patient preference, finance, logistics, distance, and this happens, you know, we looked at our database, the transplant rate today below 65, even at uh, ultra large academic centers, 50%. So there are many reasons why the transplant cannot proceed in spite of best efforts then I think we would definitely be going for maintenance. There's no question about that for this patient uh, after induction consolidation. The question is, what would be the maintenance? And this is a tricky patient because when I see a FLIT3 mutation, and that's just me because I am very into the FLIT3 and, and I believe it's in a very important target, I do want to have a FLIT3 inhibitor there. Now, one could argue well, if I can get, and we are starting to get this high sensory 10 raised to minus 6 assay, and the FLIT3 is completely gone, would I be comfortable doing a non-FLIT3 maintenance? Maybe. We haven't got to that point. We still believe that FLIT3 may be magically lurking somewhere and comes back because it does that. So I would probably go for a FLIT3 inhibitor maybe with the addition of HMA base, which you're going to talk about, you know, oral azacitidine would be one option. The other one is the uh, ASTX. So that's probably where I would lean. Uh, but if I had to just choose one, I think I'd go for the FLIT3 inhibitor. Now you're going to show some of the data that you could use oral azine, and that's not what honestly we have done. But if I had no choice and I had to go on label and the option was no maintenance or use CC486 maintenance, then I would do CC486 in that scenario. So. So I'm going to talk about a little of that, but I think what you're hearing and it's so important is that we're twitchy about stopping. We're just getting these curves better, right? The AML space, we are battered and bruised from having so many years of not being able to get patients beyond six months, let alone longer than that. And I, I think it's, it's awfully tough to actually take away the security blanket of agents that we are now used to from prior data that they are looking like they have benefit in the post-remission setting. So the question here is really going to be one of, you know, I, I, I've said at other meetings, don't fall in love with your own MRD data because you're talking about stopping therapy and the, the precedent isn't great, okay? In pH positive ALL, when you stop the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, you get relapses. In it. We all have had them even many years out. So I think it's going to, it's it, the security blanket of having an assay that's absolute. I want that too. I don't want patients stuck on therapy, but we're nervous about it. So what are we doing with maintenance? Maintenance cures people in ALL, but we've gotten rid of some maintenance, right? In APL, we had maintenance for the longest time, and now we don't. We actually can, we call that disease cured, and those patients are not getting maintenance. In ALL, LL, there is absolutely maintenance, but how long? Is it a year? Is it two years? Is it three years? Depends where you are. Depends what day of the week it is in Houston. But I think that there are different durations of maintenance. And I think that it's in the guidelines, though. And what are the drugs that are here? So you can sort of, you can see this, that in the in the patients who have chemo but don't have a transplant, um, what's in the guideline is oral azacitidine, which I'll talk about in a moment, and then post-allotransplant. So again, after your curative therapy, you're still getting maintenance. Here are some options. Um, serafinib, again, I have a very, I, I have a soft spot for serafinib because I really think it does 
things other than, um, I, I think it's immunomodulatory in interesting ways. That has been published. It is a difficult drug. There's no doubt about it. And nobody is psyched to be on it forever. Mitostorin, difficult drug to take, challenging. Gilteritinib, less challenging to take. So that one is actually, you know, people are looking at that, that, okay, that, and we have data and we have an assay, that's the easier drug. And then it says, neither of the above scenarios are applicable. Maintenance therapy is not recommended. So then we're, we're getting upset again that really I'm not going to do anything. There's nothing that I can throw at this patient. I know that they're going to relapse. So again, there's data and then there's, heart, the, there's what makes you nervous. Okay. So that's why I put this slide here. What do clinicians choose to keep patients in remission? We want to do something. The remission rates are so high. It, there is a feeling of wanting to do something. And applying toxic therapies without data is not a great idea. But what you can see here, and these are registry data, sort of this is, um, this is a plug for a, a paper that I have been working out that, uh, on that will hopefully be out soon. I'm really trying to understand what is it that doctors do? Like, what is it that they do to make these decisions? But basically, you can see here that they're, they're, you want to be doing something. There are, there are generally either the application of a hypomethylating agent, whether it's injectable or currently oral. People try to do something. There is also still a lot of discussion on post-remission um, intensive chemotherapy for intensively treated patients. And I'm going to show a little bit um, about that in a moment. But the reason, so Quasar started a really long time ago. I mean, this, this trial took a, um, a long time to get done. So the earth has, you know, rotated around 23 times since that. But basically this showed um, a uh, survival benefit for oral azocytidine. This was a placebo-controlled trial. I'm proud of the fact that maintenance and the um, uh, belief in maintenance started a long time ago. This stems all the way, all the way back from to uh, uh, 1994, the original um, HIDAC paper in, in the New England Journal, which dictated all of our post-remission consolidation therapy, did have maintenance. That had maintenance in it, and then it went away because it was a pain. This trial showed the benefit um, of uh, Oralesa, and actually it, um, we were pretty diligent about serial sample collection, which allowed the data set to be richer than just these um, uh, survival curves, which I'll show you in a minute. So one of the questions that um, I'm certainly asked most frequently is, can you go directly to maintenance after um, induction? And the, the answer to the question is, this trial did not answer the question of how much consolidation to give. I have to repeat that over and over again. That was not, we don't, this trial didn't answer that question. But we have tried. I mean, we're clinicians. We've tried to use the data. And um, uh, Andrew Way has this out in, um, I think it's in Hematologica. These, what we were trying to do is sort out what we already know that in the post 60 setting, the benefit of certainly high DAC or even intermediate dose cytarabine in multiple cycles has always been questioned and has really not shown a survival benefit. I am always surprised and I don't walk around thinking that everything I do is correct, far from it, but I literally haven't given four cycles of high DAC to a patient over 60 ever in my career. And I am stunned, actually. That I, I keep second-guessing myself because when I talk to colleagues, that is absolutely done. They're, you know, 65-year-old, oh, I get a call, they're on their fourth cycle of, of high DAC. I never do that. Do you ever do that here? 
Very rare, very difficult. I mean, maybe if it's a core binding factor patient who's yes, 61 yes. and a half, five, okay, yeah, then yeah. sure. But five, even yeah. that, it's not 18 grams, it's more like 12 or maybe 8, depending on how they look. But so we know that it doesn't confer a survival benefit. And here, I think what was being shown was most of the patients did get some consolidation, actually. Very few of them got those multiple cycles because you can really hurt people in the post, in the remission setting. It's terribly painful to lose any patient to AML, but it is extra painful in remission. And I think there is a real concern about the high-dose chemotherapy. Here, though, what you could see is that there was, there appeared to be a benefit no matter what happened, but the majority of these patients did end up getting some level of consolidation. And I think the points that we learned here is... Um, is that the the application of the oral azacitidine should be given um, whenever your chemo is done, whatever you think was the right consolidation for the chemo and what you have planned, start it, continue it. And as we can see here, we have some data, even though the trial was old. And don't forget, back in the day when this started, we didn't have baseline sequencing on people. It wasn't a thing. But we already know that this um, the drug worked irrespective of mutation status, with, um, whether it was NPM1 or FLT3. And this is what's causing a lot of stir now in, in asking the question of, oh, well, can you just do this for maintenance if you have um, a FLT3 mutated patient? There weren't that many patients here who had isolated FLT3 mutations. We certainly don't have any of the um, uh, dual uh, PCR-NGS MRD data for this group. A lot of this was driven by NPM1, but it does beg the question of what happens if you get back, if you're sitting with a patient in the post-remission setting, and you get back an NPM1 PCR that's positive, and your FLT3 is negative. Now what are you going to do? So we're going to discuss that in a minute, but I think it does beg the question, and I don't think we have, or at least I am not aware of the complete data yet from Morpho and sorting out that issue. I'm not even sure if they have those PCR data. But what do you do in something like this? What if you have an NPM1 and a FLT3? At least you have some support for an agent. This, this is something where we have, again, randomized data and it certainly looks like it's an option. If you look at the meta-analysis of hypomet, what have we used over the years for post-remission therapy? So chemo nobody likes to use. So things like, you know, 6MP and stuff like that that we use for ALL, that went out of fashion a long time ago. But hypomethylating agents, both after chemo and after transplant, are quite frequently used and have been. And if you look in the meta-analysis, it looks like it's doing something. Here you have a randomized trial showing that an oral hypomethylator is doing something. It's not totally a stretch, and everybody is going to be typing in, would I give this with a, um, a FLT3 inhibitor? Well, I'm not telling. Well, I'll tell you shortly. But um, the, so if you look here about um, MRD, so we actually worked on MRD in this trial, which again, I'm proud of this. This was a long time ago, but this is flow-based MRD. That is what we had. That is what we have now too. I am not sure. Um, I, I sort of hope, actually, that flow is not what we are going to be relying on. The good news about flow is that everybody with AML can be flowed, so you can use flow cytometry for everybody. You can't necessarily use um, mutational data for everybody. But flow is, it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to standardize. It's really hard to get it right. The bottom line here, though, is that, again, MRD-positive patients actually did better. So you're doing something with the agent. And if you were ultimately able to be MRD-negative on this trial, that was improving survival. So we are over and over again getting data that, um, that not having MRD is a good thing, but the eradication of MRD 
is what we're looking for. And these, again, point to a suggestion that getting rid of MRD is a good thing, not just that having it is, um, is bad. Those two things aren't the same, and it's worth, uh, it's worth remembering that. Again, no free lunch in medicine. So this drug can be, um, can be unpleasant, too, from a GI perspective. I actually find that people get kind of get used to it. I think the mistake is if you don't give it with an antiemetic up front, people think, it's, oh, it's a pill. I don't need to take that. That's a mistake. I think people ease into it with antiemetics, sometimes actually with antidiarrheals, depending on the individual's reaction. Then most people set, uh, settle down on it. I do have patients who are very long-term on it, so it is tolerable in the long term. But again, would I prefer to, as a patient, would I prefer not to be on anything than to be on a medication? Sure. Would I prefer to have a survival benefit? Yes. And I think that in that, if for the right patient, I think that um, this uh, toxicity, to use my favorite word, can in fact be managed. Um, so I think what we should do is actually let you go through you go the through, yeah. next session so yeah. that we can put everything together in answering yeah, the questions. We have limited time. We'll, yep. Get to that. Yeah. One of, one of the things I wanted to mention as we were talking about the MRD, this came up yesterday as well. I think Betul Oran was asked this. You have to be really, really, really careful about what we're calling MRB in the context of morpho. It has to be the really sensitive 10 raised to minus 6 assay because I can, I'm getting emails already. I had three like in the last two weeks saying, I have a FLIT3 patient, you know, I'm taking him to transplant, his MRD is negative, and I ask, what is your assay? NGS, 10 raised to minus 10 raised. That is not sufficient. So I would err on the side in that case if you're not sure that you have a really good assay to give the maintenance. That's kind of our approach today. If you really can get that high sensitivity assay specific, 10 raised to minus 6, that's the only time I would be confident to say it. So people may extrapolate and think all NGSs are the same, but that was a very specifically designed NGS for that purpose. So just to highlight that so people aren't just not giving maintenance based on a local panel of lower sensitivity. So we're going to talk a little bit about high risk and relapse refractory. We'll go quicker through this section, keep some time for discussion. So 66-year-old patient, got induction, CPX, has some therapy-related secondary ML features, goes on to not get transplant patient, a lot of discussion decided at her age, knowing the comorbidities, GVHD, and this happens quite a bit. She said, I'm going to take my chances. I understand it's high-risk disease, but I want to just continue with observation. And uh, she unfortunately relapsed, got the cytobine venetoclax. And as you know, in the salvage setting, the response rates are about 30, 35% at best. And she did not respond. So now the question is, what do you do for this patient? Second salvage, 66-year-old, has some disease, got, has some high-risk features, monosomy 7, ECH run X1. Uh, they're not great options. Obviously, we will all, the first thing we would look for is FLIT3, IDH1, IDH2, NPM1, MLL today, or one of the other fusions that upregulate MIS1 and HOXA. Can we do a menin inhibitor? But other than that, there's really no uh, great treatment, which the NCCN also highlights. The targeted therapy, number one, number two, number three, targeted therapy, best chance for this patient. Try to get into remission. Maybe she's changed her mind. Transplant is maybe an option. Yes, the cure is not high, but it could be 30, 35% post-targeted therapy in remission transplant. But for the rest, really, you're stuck with your choice of chemotherapy. And many people have argued for decades about, you know, CLIA versus CLAG-M versus MEC versus FLAG-IDA versus others. And I don't think any of them make a huge difference. Now, the FLAG-IDA-CLIA-Venetoclax may be something different. We are seeing good activity with that in somebody who can tolerate it and getting to transplant is a path. But other than that, I think any chemo combination is an option. And actually, do you even need a chemo combination? So there was a nice debate discussion between uh, Dr. Roland Walter and Dr. Shetlig from Germany talking about the ASAP trial. I mean, this trial, I have to say, really, I'm still trying to get my head around. I still don't understand it fully. I think many of us don't. 
but basically kind of goes against 40 years of dogma that transplant really should be done in patients who are in remission. Now some transplanters even say MRD negative. We haven't got to that. Luckily, they will take our patients in remission for first transplant, even if they're MRD positive, at least in MD Anderson. Of course, MRD negative is always preferred, but the reality is you cannot get that in relapse quite frequently. But their study actually just looked at doing transplant without any salvage chemotherapy. One has to realize they did give high-intensity conditioning with fludarabine and other agents. So there was treatment before. I, this is not something we have applied. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion debate. We have to wait for the manuscript. But this is something that's out there for discussion. The other is obviously uh, now there is data in a randomized setting using the agent, which is IOMAP B versus chemo. This is the design of the study. It was randomized one is to one, IOMAP B versus conventional care. There was a whole list of 10 different treatments that could be done for conventional care, various intensive chemo, low-dose chemos, HMA, VEN-based approaches. And the primary endpoint of this study was a durable CR defined as patients who are in CR 180 days post-transplant. This study was a bridge to transplant. The goal was to give the IOMAP B, which is a CD45 antibody with a I131 ablation approach, move to transplant versus chemo, move to transplant, and then how do you do with those two approaches at 180 days post-transplant? And what was seen here, this is the approach of the study. It's a dosimetric dosing. You do need lead lining. There are logistical issues that one has to you know, approach while you're getting ready for this treatment. And then once you got the treatment, you got conditioning with fludarabine followed by TBI and transplant approach. And what was seen was actually quite interesting. And, and I think, you know, a little bit of a surprise to many of us who may not have been as involved. This was also a transplant-led study. So some of the leukemia colleagues were starting to grasp this data now. What was shown was that in this randomized study, among the valuable population, the response rate clearly was higher with the IOMAB-B, the CRCRP rates, as you see here, 74 versus 6%. And the primary endpoint maintained durable CR 180 days post-transplant was also better, 22% versus 0%. So it's not a huge, huge, huge high number, but 22%, one-fourth of the patients maintaining a CR post-transplant and a higher population able to go to transplant was definitely quite encouraging. On the top, you see 91% of patients were able to receive transplant even in the crossover arm, meaning they got a therapy, it didn't work, whatever it could have been, CLAG-M, CLIA, FLAG-IDA, etc., and then they went on to IOMIB, and it still was able to get a big chunk of those patients into a transplant. And then, of course, beyond the primary 180-day number, you know, that's the number we have to choose for trial regulatory, is what is the overall survival? And here we do see that there is a survival benefit from the IOMAB-B versus the conventional care, which never had a crossover, versus those who got some chemo, then crossed over, then got IOMAB-B, then got conditioning and transplant. And you see that it is about 6.4 versus 3.2. The crossover arm also did quite similar to the IOMAB-B arm at 7. I think one-year OS is maybe a better way that we can look at this because just with the medians, I think it's really hard to say that this is clearly a blockbuster, but the one-year survival was better at 26% versus 13%. So I think there's no big decisions made. This is something we're starting to discuss in the leukemia community. It looks interesting. I think the data is there in a randomized study. It's showing a benefit. If I had such a salvage patient, I had this available, I think it is something I would consider. Of course, you have to absolutely make sure there's no targetable mutations. And again, the debate here will be what about something like Flagida Clea then, right? That data also is very, very promising and now has been published in multiple different sets. And so as we evolve, I think we will have to start comparing these approaches. I don't think randomized studies are going to be possible for every single question. That'll give us 200 randomized studies, which are not going to happen. So we're going to have to make a best decision as the data emerges. 
Now, safety-wise in general, which you're all worried when you have something with a radio conjugate, you know, can this be tolerable? And that actually looked reasonable in this case. It didn't look like there were some blazing toxicities or secondary tumors. Although the follow-up is early, we have to follow these patients longer or signals of difficulties with transplant GVHD. So again, uh, at present with this data, it does look like it's tolerable. But again, there are certain uh, logistical setups that are required. Uh, and big transplant centers, I know ours, I know Gales, are setting this up. So that is kind of the option available there. So I think for this patient, I'm going to turn it over here to Gail to get your thoughts. You know, this is a reality. We do our best up front, and I completely agree with you. Maintenance, I don't think it's just our mental makeup. I think it's real because actually you gave a very nice example of ALL. ALL is the cutting edge. They have the best molecular data, 10 raised to minus 6, reproducible. They will never stop maintenance. They will do the full maintenance, and we are way behind them. We don't have that high molecular data. We don't have those good drugs. So for sure, we should not stop maintenance. But this, in spite of doing everything, this people do relapse. You have a relapse patient like this sitting with you at Cornell today. What would be the discussion? What are your options you're thinking about? What trials, if any, are you excited about? The bottom line is that um, I don't stop maintenance once I start it. I make transplant decisions pretty quickly. I'm not likely to change my mind outside of maybe if somebody needs a month to get better, I do a little bit of bridging maintenance. I have been known to throw in a cycle of oral azacitidine or two or a cycle of HMA Ven or two, and then that is not on a label, but that is a reality that sometimes gets people better to transplant. I don't usually give multiple cycles of consolidation followed by a transplant actually ever. And when I start maintenance, I don't stop it unless I have to currently because I'm not solid on the assays yet. With respect to the relapse refractory setting, I would rather not be in the relapse refractory setting because unfortunately that is still pretty dire for patients. I think it is exciting to finally have a randomized option of something to do. I think it is going to be very tempting to try this um, uh, when it's um, available. I um, ran a trial years ago of a novel agent compared to every single chemotherapy that we had, and it all looked like the same curve. So we we're super excited to have something that is slightly better than that curve. But the, the curative option up front is obviously where everything is heading. Relapsed refractory disease um, is going to remain a challenge. You know, there was one question we didn't discuss is, can transplant be curative? And the answer is actually yes. And that is data amassing from other trials. So the ASAP trial that Dr. Shetlik showed, transplant, there was a cure component. Higher than we've seen before, but there was a cure component, you know, with the relapse giltritinib trial, Sasha Pearl has shown if you transplant those patients, 25-30% with this study, there is. So I really think in the salvage, you got to do whatever is best available, get these people to transplant. IOMAP seems like it could be an encouraging option there, and then hopefully maybe maintenance could be considered. So we will close out here. Please do do your post-test right. evaluation. I think people you will be escorting slides. us out of here shortly. Yeah, and, and and we are closed. Thank, thank you, you thank very, you very much. much. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the day at Soho. It's a great day. Bye. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HGR860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Actinium Pharmaceuticals, Estellas, and Bristol-Myers Squibb.